of all the introductions I have ever received, of all the introductions I have ever received, that one was the most recent. I didn't make that up. Jimmy Carter said that many years ago, so I take it, I take it from him. It is a joy to be with you tonight. Um, it is a joy to be with you in this church. Pam and I have enjoyed, we've been worshiping here since, since I retired last July. And I don't know how long it takes for someone to feel at home somewhere, but we achieved it months ago. And so, or you achieved it months ago. And for that, we are deeply, deeply grateful. Um, it's a joy for me, having served so long as a pastor, being in the chancel every Sunday, to sit in a pew. Um, at first, when we worshiped here, we sat together in the pew, which we realized that was the first time we had ever done that in 40 years of marriage. We have never sat together in church. I was in the chancel. She sang in the choir. She was always behind me. <clears throat> and as I was doing what I was doing, preaching in the chancel uh, from the pulpit, I never looked into Pam's face. She was behind me, so I never saw her in church. Um, I don't think we ever went to church in the same car until we came here. <laughs> We, all, we arrived at different times on Sunday mornings, and so uh, there are lots of joys, number one, to be here, and there are numerous joys to being retired. I promise you. Last Wednesday, a double day, right? Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day. Or was it Ash Wednesday? Ash Wednesday. Or, or was it Valentine's Day? Which one did you feel the most? Ash Wednesday or Valentine's Day? Ash Wednesday. Like you probably like you, I drove here to church last Valentine's Day, Ash Wednesday, I'm sorry, and I arrived and sat down in the pew carrying the heavy news of the same thing that happened the last time Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday converged on the same day. Yet another mass shooting. Last time was in Parkland, Florida, Parkland High School, Florida. This time was in Kansas City. That's what welcomed me. Well, that's what I carried into the sanctuary last Valentine's Day. Oh, oh I'm sorry, Ash Wednesday. To sit down in the quietness of the nave, to sit down on the pew, and to be welcomed to worship and separated from my day with a marvelous and beautiful organ rendition of what wondrous love 
is this. That plaintive, holy week hymn, what wondrous love is this, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, not of my soul, for my soul, for my soul. What wondrous love is this? Then on Saturday, I'm not sure, Randy, if you get Christian Century, uh, you get Christian Century, Troy, you get Christian Century, I get Christian Century. Um, It's a, I don't know what you would call it, it's a trade magazine for pastors and preachers, I guess is what you would call it, right? It used to come out weekly, but that got to be a little much, so now it comes out monthly, and so I got the March issue on Saturday. Peter Marty is the editor of Christian Century, and he writes a column in the opening parts of the page. I want to share with you a few paragraphs of his column that I read on Saturday. In 19th century Russia, wealthy, lazy members of the noble class suffered from what some referred to as the disease of Kalatnost. I I don't speak Russian, so I can't say this. Kalatnost. A.N. Wilson, in his Tolstoy biography, describes the symptoms of Kalatnost as the idleness, the moral inertia, the sense of futility, literally the dressing gownness, not dressing downness, the dressing gownness of those who loll about doing nothing and thinking futile thoughts. A collet was a plush household robe worn by indolent aristocrats. The theological word for indolence or sense of emptiness is sloth. You know sloth? Anybody practice sloth? Anybody good at sloth? Oh, come on. This is, this is Lent. This is Lent. This is Lent. Confession is good for the soul. I'm rather, I'm rather good at sloth. The longer I'm retired, the better I get at it. Sloth is one of the seven deadly sins, you know, that popularized in literature and Christian teaching for millennia. It is the sin, writes Dorothy Sayers, that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, enjoys nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing. The word itself sounds pathetic and lazy, perhaps because it is also the name of the sleepy tree-dwelling species that has the slowest metabolism rate of any non-hibernating mammal in the world. (laughs) Christians, no, no, my interest Marty writes, in sloth is about not the animal, but but rather the deadness or weariness of soul that can show up in any one of us. 
what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the deadly curse for my soul, not of my soul, but for my soul. Christians, Marty continues, who observe Lent consider it a penitential consider it a penitential season, which usually connotes calm and deliberate reflectiveness. But what if Lent challenges us to get moving, not to slow or quiet down, not to give up something, but to take on something? These are mine, not Marty's. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking now. What about taking on nothing less than what Paul refers to as the mind of Christ? To think like Jesus thinks. You've read enough gospel to know how to do that, haven't you? To feel like Jesus feels. To contemplate what Jesus contemplates about the world and about people, to see what Jesus sees, the way Jesus sees the world? What if Lent is not about giving up, but about taking on those things that can fill us and that can fulfill us, that can stretch and that can heal our souls? I wonder if our weariness with what's right in the world, with what's not right in the world, sometimes makes us more apathetic toward that which is good. Are we, in the words of Thomas Aquinas, sad about God's goodness? Have we become sluggish in spirit with a low thirst for God and a high indifference to that which makes life worth living? It could be that we're not doing all that we should be doing with our lives because of the effort involved. When Paul criticizes those in the Thessalonian community for living in idleness, mere busybodies not doing any work, he's challenging them to make something happen. Engage with the world. Stop shaping life into a yawn. Don't check out with a failure of purpose instead of moral inertia. And I quote Paul, do not be weary in doing what is right. Some of you may know of John Buchanan. I don't know if anybody does. He served a church for many years in Chicago. Downtown Chicago, Michigan Avenue in the financial district, huge Huge. Happened to be a Presbyterian church. That's why I know him. <clears throat> Served a huge Fourth Presbyterian church in downtown Chicago, right on Michigan Avenue, uh, financial district. He tells the story of one Sunday when he was just about to begin his sermon. The back doors of the church opened up and a man come, came in, a disheveled looking man, <clears throat> down the wandered down, began wandering down the center aisle. The young man was obviously distraught. And before any ushers could catch him, he got loose in the center aisle. And his hair was wild and his arms were flailing around. 
And he was, he was screaming and murmuring and speaking loudly and speaking in tongues, John thought, maybe. I don't know what he's speaking about. He was praying and talking, talking about all kinds of things, nonsensical. Every head in the sanctuary turned to see what was going to happen next. About that time, John says, Art, one of the associate pastors, gets up from the chancel and walks down the steps of the chancel, walks down the center aisle, and meets the young man, helps him find a seat, hands him a bulletin, sits down beside him, and puts his arm around his shoulders. The young man leaned his head into Art's strong shoulder, got quiet and calm. John said, not a person in that sanctuary heard his sermon that day because they had seen one. Faith, you see, <clears throat> is not a set of beliefs. Faith is not limited to a set of beliefs or creeds. Did you know that in the Apostles' Creed or in the Nicene Creed, there is not a single word about doing anything? Did you know that? Listen Sunday when you say the, the Nicene Creed and see, I don't think, Randy, help me, I don't think there's a single word of action in there about doing anything, nor in the Apostles' Creed. I don't think there's a single word about get up and do something. It's all about beliefs. Nothing wrong with beliefs, mind you. Nothing wrong with creeds, mind you. Nothing wrong with ideas, mind you, as long as they don't end with a period. You understand what I mean by that? <clears throat> as long as they don't stop at the end of I believe. Faith is not a set of beliefs. It's not a set of creeds. Creeds and faith is the foundation of our, I mean, creeds and beliefs are the foundations of our faith. Faith is about how we live and behave and act in the world. All of that built upon ideas and creeds. You can't live like, you can't live without ideas and creeds. I get that. You have to believe something. But generally what you do displays to people what you believe. Don't you think? It's kind of like a musical score or a dramatic play. The performance of the Bible, the performance of the text is essential. The performance of a musical score or a dramatic play is essential in conveying the meaning of the score or the meaning of the play. They only begin to deliver their meaning when they are lived out, when they are performed. I've often wanted to ask a <clears throat> composer of a piece of music after he or she has heard someone play the notes on the page, is that what you wrote? My guess is, my guess is, many of them will say, that's what she heard I wrote. 
play or the musical score of the play comes alive when it is performed. The biblical text comes alive when it is performed, when it is done, when it has life, when it breathes and it comes to life, and it is only fulfilled when it bears fruit and it begins to show a little action. Biblical texts are allowed to live in the lives of those who claim them as formative. If we don't live them, then they're not formative in my view. Or as the writer of the letter of James, Martin Luther's favorite book, Steve, <clears throat> writer of the letter of James put it, be doers of the words, not just hearers, because faith without works is... No. Faith without works is a belief system, and in my opinion, a belief system never changed anything. Never changed the world. The belief system never changed the world. But a belief system that is given life can change the world. If I, have, if I have heard that the greatest commandment is to love God with all my mind, my heart, and my soul, and my body, and I only manage to make it to church once a quarter, what good is that? If I have heard that the other commandment is, you tell me, the other commandment is to love my neighbor as myself, and I continue to leave the poor man lying in the ditch, what good is that? If I have heard that Christ has destroyed the walls that divide us, <clears throat> and yet I continue to harbor grudges and find fault and nurse long-held prejudices, what good is that? If I have heard that I should forgive seven times 70, or to put it in street language, until it works, and I keep poking the bruise, what good is that? If I have heard that at the heart of things, God is love and always will be, and yet I, as a creature created in the image of God, don't express that love in my work and in my play every day. What good is that? Faith, you see, is a verb. Faith is a verb. Faith is an action word. Faith is a way of life, and that, my friends, is God's truth. You've heard faith, way in life and truth. Faith is a way of life, and that is God's truth. It's not so much what we believe, although beliefs are important. It's how we put into action what we believe. <clears throat> a couple of the preachers in the room might have heard this story. Many, maybe some of you have used this story about the little girl. I don't know if you heard the story about the little girl, 11 years old. It's a different time. She was about 10 or 11. <clears throat> her father asked her one day after school if she would go down to the corner grocery store. Like I said, it's a different time. Go to the corner grocery store and pick up a few things that they needed. So off she went down the street to the corner. He gave her some money, and off she went down the street to the corner grocery store. And he sat down and waited for her. And he waited for her. And he waited for her. He started calculating how long it would take her to walk down there. 
and to get the items that he had given her and how long it would take her to walk back. And the clock kept ticking and she wasn't there. And finally the door opened and in she walks and she said, I'm so glad to see you. I've been waiting for you. What took you so long to get home? She said, oh, 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 I'm sorry. Susie, my best friend, you know Susie, she, she, I was walking and I saw her and she had dropped her doll in the street and it broke. And he said, oh, I'm so proud of you, my darling, for helping her pick up the pieces. And she said, no, I didn't help her pick up the pieces. She said, I helped her cry. What God needs, what God needs, I think, what the world needs, what God needs, in my view, someone who is willing to speak truth into a world living with so much illusion. To offer comfort to a world in so much pain. To express hope to a society that lives in so much despair. And to convey peace to those who live in so much fear, but also, also to share hearty laughter with those who wake up every morning to the joy of a new day. Because I believe there are people out there who long, they may not know it, but who long to know and who long to feel what it is that we have heard and what it is that we have committed our lives to and what it is that we say we believe every Sunday that rolls. You know what happens every Sunday here? Well, we say the creed, we gather, we say, but you know what else happens every Sunday here? At some point in the service, Randy will go and put the robe on, put the liturgical, yeah, and he'll go stand behind the altar, and he will say, he'll break the bread, and he'll recite the words of institution that are taken from Luke 22. On the night when he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said to them, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Have you ever thought about what he meant by that? What does he mean by that? What does that mean to you? Do this in remembrance of me. Does it mean every Sunday we do this? Does it mean every Sunday we replicate this meal? Does it mean every Sunday Randy stands and says these words to us and we all march up there and get the bread and the juice? What, is the, what do the words, do this in remembrance of me, mean to you? Could it, could, it, could it possibly be, could it possibly be one and the same time an identity and a mission expressed to those disciples? One and the same time an identity and a 
mission. I had this imagination that in the upper room, the upper room, I had this imagination was at least on the second floor, maybe the third floor. I'm not sure how high, up, how high up it was in Jerusalem. I had this imagination that there was a window or maybe a slit. I'm not sure. But I had this imagination that Jesus was with his disciples and he could see out the window and he could see into the streets of Jerusalem. And when he was gathered with his disciples, <clears throat> he took the bread and he broke it. And he looked out the window and he said to those people, this is my body. This is my body. No less than Paul said, this is my body. You are my body, he said to those disciples who would become his church. This is, this is my body. Broken and given and shared for you. An identity. This is my body. And a mission. Broken for the world. And whenever you give yourself and share yourself and do these things that reflect the mind of Christ to the world, you are doing them in remembrance of Him. I also have this imagination that somewhere, somewhere, Jesus is looking and He's watching and he is wondering who will speak my words? Who will be voice? Who will be my welcoming hands? Who will be my feet that march into strange and sometimes dangerous places? Who will be my arms that reach out wide and welcome those not used to being welcomed? Who will be my voice and speak to those who haven't heard a voice in years? A kind voice, anyway. Who will be my heart and express love for those who need nothing but love? Who will be the ones who show to the world the mind of Christ? Who will be the ones who hear, really hear, this is my body. This is my body. This is my body, he said. This is my body, he said. Broken for you, he said. Do this in remembrance of me. Who will it be? He wonders. Oh, excuse me. I thought I saw your hand go up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
Sehr schön.